0: and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House! Ah! I love
2: the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people.
1: This is going to be a good one, guys lots of stuff to talk about um as a a special treat we're just gonna talk about how this new star wars can't make up for the last two because they're so friggin horrible (laughs) so let's start at episode seven because when they were to it's um hi (laughs) not exciting new episode on friday right not not what no the
3: movie comes out tomorrow is it tomorrow on thursday tomorrow yeah
1: technically it comes out tomorrow yeah. Terrible. Doesn't matter. Hi, guys. It's Barstool Politics. I am your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Mott from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College, uh, who's still having some back issues, but he's going to join us for for the second part of the uh, the podcast. Uh, but we also have senior legal analyst Tom Cavanaugh with us again. Hi, Tom. Great to be
2: here. We've uh, we've begun with a sublime beer uh, that we will talk about <laughs> at the reviews. Oh, so uh, we are all raring to go, having had that. <laughs> Phil's not here, so we can talk about him. (laughs) (laughs) It's just turning out to be perfect.
1: (laughs) Uh, Before we get started, all the usual fun stuff. If you guys have uh, questions, comments, beer suggestions, want to see what we're up to, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Beers that we try, you can find on on Untapped on iOS or Android. Uh, Just search for Barstool Politics. The podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music. Uh, most major podcasting platforms review us, share us like us through there. And we always appreciate the support. Uh, and if you've been here the past several episodes, uh, we have our own merch line now, which you can find on teespring.com uh, a direct link still haven't found a good way to do that look for uh our social posts that will take you directly to that uh we've got a hoodie we've got a couple different mugs a t-shirt we're gonna be adding more uh soon when we decide to be creative and i probably have a few more beers in me uh over christmas break um but it's a foil hat the (laughs) is not yet available i just want to point this out it's been two weeks (laughs) We should, we should make those ourselves, oh right? Oh my God. Can we just do like a trucker hat that has a foil hat yeah. on it? Is that possible?
2: Maybe that'll be my contribution.
1: <laughs> I like it. The government
2: blocking foil hat.
1: <laughs> on that note, uh, like I said, you can find those links on social media. Definitely check it out. They're super fun. Um, it's impeachment day. Uh, at, at the time we're taping this... Um, Uh, The House is still, quote unquote, debating this, um, which is just grandstanding bullshit. But on top of that. Uh, let's just talk about it since, uh, the, this first topic bill has labeled impeach a palooza exclamation. Tom, point. Tom gave me that one. That's a Did great, he? I love it. I love <laughs> it. Bill, can you give us a rundown? Sure.
3: So today, literally, as we are speaking, the house of representatives is debating and will in all likelihood vote to impeach the president, uh, sometime later tonight in what would be the only the third impeachment of a president in us history, at which point the case will move to the Senate for trial. Maybe, uh, to determine if president Trump should be removed from office. This last week, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell pledged that as as the process plays out, he will be in, quote, "...total coordination with the White House, and there will be no difference between the president's position and our position as how to handle this." McConnell also appeared to reject a request from Minority Leader Chuck Schumer to hear from four top White House officials during the impeachment trial, most notably from acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney and former National Security Advisor John Bolton. As the case proceeds to the Senate, all sorts of interesting questions have emerged. For instance, must the Senate even hold a trial? Who writes the Senate rules? Can the President appeal to the Supreme Court if he's convicted? What about double jeopardy if the Senate acquits? Uh, will podcast favorite Justin Amash be a house impeachment manager? Uh, what do the actual impeachment articles mean? And is it proper to think of senators as jurors in an impeachment trial? As Nick noted, we've got our senior legal analyst to help think through all of this. Tom, what part of impeachment impeach a should we start with? <laughs> it's hard to say. It is a tough word. It's, it's tough
2: to spell
0: too. Yeah, as right. it turns out. <laughs> yes.
2: Well, I, I, I want to start with senators aren't jurors. And I, I guess what I'd say is I think there's four things that it'd be kind of fun to talk about. The first is, uh, what is a senator in the context of an impeachment trial if they're not a juror and they aren't? And we've mm-hmm. actually know this from the Clinton trial. Second, uh, I want to invoke the word norms and go, uh, go get Phil, go get Phil. God, <laughs> and talk you're a, little summoning, a little bit yeah. about uh, the changing norms in, in American politics that this impeachment is bringing about. Third, I want to talk about the second article, which I regard as uh, barely worth the paper on which mm-hmm. it's written. i will say a word about that. And last, we should take up the double jeopardy question because among all of those others, that's the really interesting one to me. So quickly, answers on the others. Um, Do they have to hold a trial? The Constitution doesn't say, but their rules say that they do, so they have to hold a trial. That could involve a very brief dismissal, but I think probably you'll see uh, witnesses and evidence and that sort of thing of some sort. Um, Who sets the rules? They do. And they do by a simple majority, and it's worth mentioning that they only need 51 votes to set rules, even though they need a much higher number to actually remove the president from office. And what that means is there's likely to be some real debate about what those rules look like, because um, you could have a handful of senators defect on the question of removal. But if you have two senators defect on rules, then you've got a big problem. We've said before that John Roberts enforces those rules, but he doesn't write them. On The federal rules of evidence... And procedure don't uh, apply. Third, the president cannot appeal a conviction. Mm-hmm. These are co-equal branches of government. If the Senate convicts and removes from office, it is a final non-appealable uh, decision. Uh, fourth, Justin Amash will not be a pawn of the buffoons <laughs> that are currently <laughs> occupying both sides of the aisle in Congress. At least I hope he won't. There was talk, and I, the reason I brought this up when I sent Impeachapalooza over was there was some talk that maybe he could be talked into being one of the managers to show an overture towards sort of handedness yeah. and, and bipartisan. No, it's not going to happen.
3: Although I will say the, the one speech I did listen to today was his at the house. And it was it was very, very good. And he started with, I am not a Democrat. I'm not coming here as a Republican. I'm coming here as an American citizen. It was it was one of the few ones that were powerful.
2: Mm-hmm. He's that. Yeah. I wish he was running in 2020. <laughs> it's probably too late to draft a Justin this the campaign uh, because we're left with um, not much of any value other than him. Anyway, uh, so uh, one last reminder, because I continue to hear, uh, uh, even on the radio in, on the way in this morning, there's no crime been committed. Let's just remind listeners one more time that a crime is not required for uh, an impeachment. This is a political process, and a crime may or may not be part of it uh crimes were parts of the previous uh three uh, two impeachments and one movement toward it so there is some deviation from the norm that there mm-hmm. isn't one here but that is not a requirement so what are senators uh, uh this is an intriguing question uh, I, I think because the analogy that we keep hearing is that uh the house is a prosecutor and the senate is the jury and the Supreme Court Chief Justice is going to be the presiding trial judge. And in fact, what happened at the Clinton trial uh, suggests that that's not, it doesn't suggest, it commands that it is not true. So there was this wonderful exchange between Senator Harkin and uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, who was presiding over the Clinton trial. Uh, Harkin was clearly ready for uh, the opening statement from the House managers where they implored the senators to be fair and impartial jurors. Uh, Harkin immediately objected and said, uh, we should not use the word juror at any point during this trial. And Rehnquist sustained the objection. I suspect he knew it was coming, but if he didn't, um, he he handled it very quickly. And uh, uh, he said this, the Senate's not a jury, the Senate's a court, and they have a much bigger mandate than an ordinary jury does. They are triers of both fact and law, which is not true of a juror uh, uh, in a conventional trial. Um, And we dispense with the idea in an impeachment trial that a senator doesn't have preconceived notions of the outcome. That is, we go to great lengths when we try a civil or a criminal lawsuit to eliminate people that come with uh, irrebuttable biases. Here, we don't bother doing that for obvious reasons. You can't get replacements for them. But the idea that a Senate as a court and a senator as something more than a juror is what's going to drive this trial, I think is really important. It actually harkens back to a question we asked earlier. Do you have to recuse Mm -hmm. if you stand to benefit from the conviction of the president? I'm still inclined to think that I think Mm -hmm. a person of honor would do that. But bearing in mind that you don't go into it pretending at impartiality and and pretending at not knowing what's going on may change that a little bit. A juror absolutely Mm -hmm. has to get out if she has some bias towards one of the parties or the other. The Senate, not so much. And And because they're not jurors. And we've seen that
3: divide in the the Republicans have said, no, we are not. You're right. We are not jurors. We are. We have a sense of this already. We think this is a partisan witch hunt. And so we're not going to, you know, objectively evaluate the evidence, whereas the Democrats are saying, no, remove yourself. You know, it's
1: interesting to see that play out. And you're right. This is it's political. It's very, very different from a trial. So realistically, if it is political in nature and we're all in agreement that it is at this point. And senators aren't jurors, and we don't necessarily have to have a trial beyond the rules that they've set for themselves. What the hell are we doing at this point? Why are we wasting our time on this? Go back Please. to something Jerry Nadler <laughs> yeah. said
2: during the Clinton impeachment. He's been there that long, and I'm going to just say that that's an argument for term limits, mm-hmm. not him mm-hmm. in in some individual way. But uh, here we come full circle to a guy who said during the Clinton impeachment, This should not be a partisan matter. It should not be a thing voted on party lines. And it is wrong if an impeachment is conducted that way. And here he is now presiding over an impeachment, Mm -hmm. uh, which will be unlike the Clinton and Johnson impeachments, exactly along party lines, both the charge and the judging of it. That's an interesting conversation.
3: Let me let's can we just table that for a second? Because I think the point earlier about the Senate brings us to I was doing a little reading of the Federalist Papers, and I think it might be useful. Don't fall asleep, Nick. Um, so Hamilton. So people have been talking about Federalist 65, written by Hamilton. And he speaks to, so everybody says this is such a partisanship, a partisan era. And the founders, the founder, he thought very much about this. So in, in Federalist 65, he says, speaking of the impeachment process, they are of a nature which may be peculiar propriety, propriety, I'm sorry, propriety to be denominated political, right? And he puts it at all caps. He says it's going to be political as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to to the society itself. The prosecution of them for this reason will seldom fail to agitate the passions of the whole community and to divide it into parties more or less friendly or inimical to the accused. And in such cases, there will always be the greatest danger that the decision will be uh, relegated more by comparative strength of parties than by the real demonstrations of innocence or guilt. I mean, I think he was, they were thinking about this. They said, this is going to be contentious. It's going to be political. Now, what's interesting to me is his solution for this is the Senate. That's why it has to go to the Senate uh, going on in sixty five, the convention it appears thought that the Senate, the most fit depository for this important trust, those who can best discern the intrinsic difficulty of the thing will be least hasty in condemning the that opinion and will be most inclined to allow weight to the arguments which they must supposed uh, to have produced it. Right. So he's saying that okay, this boomer. this one <laughs> okay, boomer. this one institution is the one thing that can separate itself. From the hysteria of impeachment to have a reasoned debate, and I think what we're seeing is we no, know that's not true. It's not going to happen, right? <laughs> and, it, and maybe that's a shame. Uh, you know, maybe we've been we've become too party centric. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they they anticipated that impeachment would be contentious. They hoped this one institution could step back and engage it. You know,
1: outside of that that hysteria mm-hmm. here again, we see the breakdown of political norms and I'll just, I'll just leave it at that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to come to political yeah. norms. We don't have to mm-hmm. do it right now. Uh, but, but they are breaking down mm-hmm. I, in, in real frightening and important ways. Uh, Tocqueville said the same thing. I think I read that quote, mm-hmm. a boy, months ago mm-hmm. on, on the, the podcast that this was going to turn into uh, a sort of vulgar political exercise to curb presidential authority, as opposed to a genuine effort to protect, let's use the word Nancy Pelosi used this morning, the republic. Mm-hmm. Nothing makes me happier than watching people who've trampled all over my beloved constitution <laughs> fall deeply and permanently in love with it once again. <laughs> Nancy Pelosi being at the head of yeah. the parade.
3: And we, we've talked about the whether this will lead to Greater number of impeachments in the future, and I think if that's the case, this is really, really dangerous. Although I, I continue to come back to the argument, if a president engages in abusive behavior and you don't hold them accountable for that, that also sets a new norm, right? So, if 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 it isn't, if President Trump doesn't understand that his conduct dealing with Ukraine was inappropriate, that, that means there's no check on the president. You're right, right.
1: but it's not that just he doesn't understand yeah. or, or believe that. A huge portion of the population doesn't believe it either. It's not just a political, you know, uh, it's, it's not just a misunderstanding of, of political intricacy. Mm-hmm. It's a huge portion of the American people do not believe that this is true as well. They're elected officials. Sure. Also agree with that point. Well, like, the country's divided,
3: right? I mean, that 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 partisanship determines how you understand these facts. I no, I'm not disagreeing with that, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have a real conversation about right. you know what the president did and is this appropriate or not. I mean, we're you know we're not even you know he keeps talking about uh, you know go to the transcript. I think yes, let's go to the transcript. Let's have that real conversation about sure. what he did and what those around him did, and and is that an offense? which we say is impeachable or not, mm-hmm. which is
2: different than is it inappropriate, right? Yes. Yes. And I think that's one of the things the population's kind of hung up on. I'm betting nearly 100% would say, yeah, it's probably not an appropriate thing to do. Mm-hmm. But they'd say that, you know, about Obama kvitzing with Medvedev about give me a break before my second election. Kennedy, for goodness sakes, tried to hide from a mistress mm-hmm. by uh, engaging in behavior that was horrifying. Uh, presidents have been doing this for decades. Now, I don't mean, to, I, please don't hear me countenancing mm-hmm. it. Please don't hear me saying it's appropriate. The question's whether it's impeachable. And that's a thing on which I think reasonable people can disagree. Sure. Mm-hmm. And, and, but that, does, yeah,
3: absolutely. And I think, go back to Clinton, right? There were, you know, it was clear that Clinton had perjured himself. And then the the process said, yes, he did that, but he shouldn't be removed from office. Even
2: though he did that. Yes. He shouldn't mm-hmm. be yes. removed right. Exactly. Yes, right, exactly. That's a big deal, yeah. right? Right. He was disbarred. Yep. He was publicly shamed. He engaged in behavior today that would make you unemployable in any company or government entity in the uh, United States of America. And we said that doesn't rise to the level. So the question is whether or not this does, and, and I'm having trouble really believing that the future of democracy to use another phrase that's been bandied about by, uh, uh Democrats that genuinely the future of democracy is at stake. If this president is allowed to continue in his reckless behavior. Well,
1: well he'll be a president that? king if we don't do something about it. I'm right? not so sure. Well, I don't know. I, Those are I, Nancy You, you know, I, I say words. this. Yeah.
2: One always stipulates. Uh, I, I am not an apologist for, for Donald Trump. I think his behavior goes beyond inappropriate in a thousand different ways. He's debased the public mm-hmm. dialogue. He's done all sorts of terrible things. Having said that, I'm not persuaded this is an impeachable mm a pair of offenses. I think the second article is garbage and we can come to that in a minute. I'm not sure. I think the first one is either. See, i guess i would push it's back political log yeah i would
3: push back a little bit and say that you know for me the idea of investigating asking a foreign country to investigate a political opponent to me that's a that's a big deal and it gets to the the process of democracy right how this all plays out intervening in a, in, in our election for me that is a big deal and and grounds for this conversation and if the senate were to have that conversation and say it's akin to clinton inappropriate but not grounds for removal i would be content but we're not having that conversation right it's still that oh it was a perfect conversation there was nothing wrong with that uh this this absurdity of saying that when in the in the conversation when he says can you do us a favor he expects trump expects us to believe he's referring to the us right oh i meant us not us i mean that's that we're not idiots right uh, what he was doing was he was saying i want you to investigate my opponent and i'll release some military aid when you do that let's have a real conversation about whether we think that's appropriate or agreed. not
2: agreed and 100 percent of all americans said when bill clinton parsed the word is yeah we're not idiots exactly we know what you yeah. did, <laughs> and then the senate said not enough yeah mm-hmm. it doesn't rise to the level and i, I, I why don't we come to norms yeah, sure um uh, as I was reflecting on this, I, I, uh, I like to leave a, a phrase behind, you know, the Constitution. This is the borking of a president, hmm. or at least we should talk about whether it's the borking of a president. You should explain and, the and borking. what I mean yeah. by that is that um, Supreme Court justice Senate hearings were typically, until the Bork hearing, uh, very routine, very short. There's no constitutional requirement that the Senate even have one. Um My recollection is that it was Justice Brandeis who was the first one that actually did. Uh, He didn't even appear on his own. Uh, But along comes Robert Bork, very controversial, very conservative, very qualified. Uh, and, And I say that because I don't think anybody disagrees about that. But was Borked, which was his positions were inimical to those on the other side. And they kept him from a seat on the court. Uh I'd argue inappropriately. What we did to Merrick Garland was also mm-hmm. inappropriate. But but Borking started an entirely different thing. And the hearings since Bork have been contentious, mm-hmm. ugly, probing, and in my judgment, indefensible. Partisan and indefensible. Uh, whether you like Kavanaugh or not, what happened during those <laughs> hearings was us at our worst. And what I'm worried might be happening here is that the, the, a comparable sort of mm-hmm. norm is emerging. That is, if you don't like a president, and it's clear that people don't, there's a huge number of people that don't like this president, and said from the moment he was elected, we're going to get this guy knocked out of office. He's not wrong when he says in that letter to Pelosi that you've been after me since before I took the oath. Mm-hmm. Have been. that we are borking a president. We're producing a... Um, a scenario where we normalize using sure. impeachment as a way of stopping a president from doing the job.
3: I think that they matters there. They've been after us, right? So you're right that there were individuals in the Democratic Party who from early on said, we're going to, who is it? We're going to impeach the MFR, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I can't remember who that was. That uh, wasn't AOC. Il- it was Gilhan Il- uh, Omar. Yes. Um, so you're right. There were individuals, but but Nancy Pelosi was not one of those. Right. And, and throughout the Mueller investigation, I mean, so there's the narrative now is that the Republic, I'm sorry, the Democrats were racing to impeach him when the reality was they waited until this Ukraine issue to to actually move towards impeachment. So while there were absolutely elements within the party that wanted to move that way, that w- the party as a whole didn't do that. Leadership didn't do that.
1: I don't necessarily think that's true. Like, and realistically, it's outside of the party, too. Like, do you know when the first article came out about impeaching Trump? 20 minutes after he was inaugurated.
3: Sure.
2: But I mean, that's different. Okay, so You're
1: one right, but,
3: member of Congress is different than the party as a whole.
2: But it's not just one. No, but there was no I mean serious. It might have been a majority or something yeah, like that. Yeah, no serious but, effort. But identify the last president who prior to the oath of office had multiple elected officials, either in the Senate or the House, saying we're going to impeach this. Uh, fill in the blank. I can't. Think oh, of sure. One.
3: That that was inappropriate. But I would say, is is it all that different from when Obama's elected and Mitch McConnell says my number one job is to prevent uh, Obama from getting reelected? I mean, throughout Obama's term, they were talking about impeaching him. There was a video going around right. today of, of Donald Trump saying that they should they you know that they should impeach Obama. I mean, this
1: is sure that conversation but they didn't was trying to impeach him. They uh, and realistically, there's a difference between we don't want him to have a second term, yeah. and beating him at the ballot, and sure. You know, not wanting not wanting someone to have a second term and impeaching them. And realistically, members of the House today had the audacity to say that new members of Congress weren't elected to purely uh, stop Trump from getting reelected. Like it's it's complete that that was their platform for for a lot of the new members of Congress. It wasn't the policies that they were putting forward. It was that they didn't want him to have a second term.
2: But to suggest they didn't want him to finish his first term,
1: right? But to suggest
3: that from the get go, the party as a whole was 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 just finding any grounds to impeachment. I think that's that's not fair. Right. There were individuals, but that's different from the party as a whole. And in particular leadership. Right. We don't hold the Republican Party accountable for all of the right wing nuts who say things. We don't say that speaks for the entire Republican Party. Right. Steve King in Iowa isn't the entire Republican Party. And so, you know, we shouldn't do the same thing for more radical elements of the Democratic Party. And Mm -hmm. the, the Democrats were restrained. It was no Mueller emoluments. None of those things led to talk about impeachment. It wasn't until the Ukraine, you know, the quid pro quo for investigating a political opponent where the party finally moved years, years in. I think that's an important element. Mm
1: -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I feel like so many of the conversations that we had when there was some sort of, you know, sniff of impropriety or some sort of political firestorm, whether we're talking about, um, God, I can't remember, um, I don't know any any number yeah. of the uh, administration officials who left or were fired or something like that knew who had dirt on the president or the way the administration or the the campaign conducted themselves. Every conversation we had was this is it. This is going to be the thing that leads to impeachment. I know we had the conversation sure. mm-hmm. and I know the Democrats were having that conversation because it was in every friggin report or every uh, um, article that we had in these conversations sure. that we had. But if
3: we are honest, Donald Trump has lent himself to many of those conversations, sure, right? Whether sure. it's emoluments or whether it's the Mueller investigation, you know, obstruction. of There are he is. It's not as if he is he's is perfectly clean. No, absolutely. He, you know, not. he has, no, put, no. He has re- redefined right. norms in a way that have had led to these conversations. Mm-hmm.
2: The, the question and I, I've asked it before, is what are we <laughs> going to think 25 years from now? If there's been four more presidents that have been hamstrung by Congress is trying to impeach them uh, maybe earlier, because now that you've established a precedent as this is a way listen, because they've been talking about the reason to impeach him is just as much about what he's already done as what he might in the future do. Yes. Well, this is let's start by saying this is a thing that would only be true in an impeachment trial. We don't say we're going to try Bill Muck for murder because he might commit it in the future. Right, right, right. right. So, I mean, again, I want to draw a line between the the analogy to a criminal uh, trial. This is not a criminal trial. Now, I'm troubled by the idea that you might impeach a president in part because of what you think he may do in the future. This was not an argument about Clinton. It was not an argument about Nixon. And it was not an argument about Johnson. It is an argument about Trump. He's a danger to the republic. And if we don't stop him, he'll get worse. Now, maybe he will. But again, this is not this is precedent setting. This is not like the other three. And if there wasn't
3: something to, you're right, if, if it was just we're afraid he's going to do something, but he's done things, right? I mean, he's done, we can look to the Ukraine examples to say, let's have a conversation about that. That is something that should concern us. So I think you're right. The conversation about forward-looking things is, is dangerous. Uh, but I think there's enough on the ground to say this is what he has done. And I also think about what will people twenty five years from now looking back at the the Trump presidency, if we didn't impeach him, if there wasn't some sort of accountability, will they say, like, what how did you let this happen? This is such a unique moment in US political political system.
1: Nobody gives a shit. (laughs) Like really 25 years from now, unless he manages to destroy the country in the next four years, nobody is gonna have that conversation. And realistically, the only way that that's gonna happen. We and I, I know we've talked about this in dozens of podcast episodes. He has shown every instance of where political norms have shaped the way that presidents conduct themselves. And the fact that Congress continues not to act to fill fill in those gaps. Yeah, no, that's right. Shows that they're not really that interested in fixing the problem. They're interested in fear mongering mm-hmm. and, you know, partisan uh, backlash. It's just. If I, I understand the the potential concept of there being severe uh, uh, problems in the future. But if you're not willing to fix those problems, is the branch that is supposed to be responsible for this going forward? Yeah, we're going to continue to see this happen <clears throat> and it's going to be on your heads. Like I, I, I don't. I, I don't know what you want us to do, what's supposed to be done at this point, if it's a political process change it to not be a political process. Then Mm -hmm. put some guardrails on this because there are none right now.
2: (laughs) Well, there is an option. I made a case for it nine months ago, at least on on this podcast. And I was hoping that there would be somebody in these debates today who'd stand up and say, I'll bet we could get a hundred senators to vote. Yes. On censure. Mm -hmm. It would be harder to run for president having been censured by both parties. So if what you're interested in is keeping him out of office, um, instead of making him a martyr, you make him Mm -hmm. uh, a president who has been censured by his own party and the other one. Uh, It's the overreach. And that maybe leads us to this article two thing, but the overreach is what troubles me here. It's that's the precedent that's set. An adult in the room and boy, oh boy, I listened to a lot of today and I didn't hear many adults Mm -hmm. in the room uh, would have said uh, the case is difficult. The case is close and in the spirit of bipartisanship let's move censure forward at least as an option so that we can try and pull from both sides of the aisle to signal to use bill your words inappropriate behavior from the president is not acceptable to Mm -hmm. us and the way to stop this is to make it the case that he has to run as the first president in american history Who's been censured by his own Congress? Mm-hmm. Now, that would have been the smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. At least I think it would be. And I'm—I haven't heard an argument against this other than that. Well, we just got to get this son of a bitch out of office, and—and and I don't know if I buy that. Well, it's—it's it's hard. Now
3: we've—we've we've camped around our parties, right? So, so Republicans can't move. They can't move towards censure because that would put them in danger, and Democrats right. can as well. right? No I mean, room so, for dissent. On you know, and, and it's interesting to see, I know there are Republicans, you hear read accounts all the time, who are troubled by Trump's behavior, but they're not safe to go after him, right? And so mm-hmm. it, it prevents any any bit of discussion on finding a middle ground to yeah, say-
2: where are the state's people yeah. who, who'd stand up and say, <laughs> you know, listen, I've been here for my entire adult life, I've got a pension coming, so I'm going to just say it. Let's censure this guy. Mm-hmm. Let's agree on it. Let's 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 do something different than this brawling party mm-hmm. nonsense.
1: Anyway, we got to yeah, get to article R2, two. Yeah,
2: yeah. Because I want to come back to the argument you made about timing. Article two is the one that says the president has obstructed Congress by not giving them everything they want. And I, I just I want to point out the reason that I said that I think it's a trash article is uh, a every modern president has declined to give Congress things they asked for including but not limited to Barack Obama, who did it repeatedly. And uh, again, I think justifiably, but as to very big things, what's odd about this scenario is that the Democrats haven't even pretended to go to the courts. Uh, The the normal course of events is to ask a court to enforce a subpoena. Officers of the court have the right to, uh, to issue them without a judicial opinion. And then when a side says, well, I'm not going to honor it, you go to court and ask a court to enforce it. Democrats haven't even bothered to do that. And that's very troubling to me. Clinton and Nixon both got all the way to the Supreme Court on subpoenas and uh, requests for documents and that sort of thing. The court ruled in a timely fashion. Uh, I I keep talking about all three. I realize Nixon was never impeached, but But I don't think any serious person thinks he wasn't going to be. So I'm going to lump him in uh, with Johnson and, and Clinton. Uh, but Clinton and Nixon both got all the way to the Supreme Court. That is to say, Congress did its job. They went to the third branch of government. They got an Article Three judge to make a ruling. Then they got appellate courts. Then they got Supreme Court. This is the way it's done. And, and I think it's bad faith to throw a subpoena, get a no, and then say, great, we're going to impeach you for saying no to a question that we don't have an answer to. That's the part that really troubles me. This is part of the lowering of the bar. These are not illegitimate assertions of executive privilege. Reasonable people can disagree about whether he should, should get this privilege or not. This is something Nick, but you and I
3: kicked her on last week. We were talking about, you know, the Democrats came with the, just the two charges mm-hmm. instead of, uh, you know, really bringing the whole house to say, let's talk about the Mueller report. Let's talk about obstruction of justice. Sure. Let's talk about bribery and the timing issue. And there are political dynamics that push this and force this to be more quickly. But I, I agree with you, Tom, that I really think if, it, you know, allowing this to play out or allow it to play out in the courts would give them greater leverage to say, we've tried everything right now. That all being said, Trump is also playing a game, right? He is intentionally slow playing this and and not giving up. So there's a different degree to which Trump is doing this than others, uh, where, you know, you're right, Obama didn't get everything. But Trump from the get-go has said no access, no documents. Um, and that, I think, is a, a different dynamic and, and puts extra pressure on the Democrats. But I, I do agree that I, I would have preferred that it. that the
2: scope and the aggressiveness yeah. of, of the Trump assertions is different than in, in Nixon and uh, Clinton, but, but it, it it remains the case that trial court appellate court and Supreme court justices could have solved this problem. So I want to just come back to the thing we talked about before the podcast started and it's the timing question. Well, this would take too long. I don't, I'm not convinced that it would. Uh, Let's start with the fact that Clinton and Nixon, they got it done. And let's go on and say that if this is not a garden variety, department of justice subpoena to get, records from you know a corporation that lied to somebody or something like that this is impeachment so if you went to the dc circuit let's say and said we want you to enforce the subpoena i suspect it bubbles to the top of their agenda (laughs) given who the parties are Mm -hmm. Uh, the possibility then is that the supreme court could take the case without even letting it move Mm -hmm. through an appellate court so i'm not persuaded this would take so long uh, that it would interfere with the possibility of keeping him from being reelected. Maybe it would. Mm-hmm. But I think the precedent is on the side of the courts can get this done. And I think the courts should have gotten it done. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a terrible miscalculation. Uh, and I think you're going to hear about it at the Senate trial uh, for the House to simply decide we're not going to go to court to try and enforce our subpoenas. Mm-hmm.
3: It's an interesting question, right? Whether they should have gone with obstruction of justice and going back to the Mueller report to say, like, that's really what we're upset about versus right, obstruction totally of Congress. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the 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 case would have been stronger for obstruction of justice. Um, yeah, no, well, I'm I'm sympathetic. To should that we one. just
2: take thirty seconds on double jeopardy? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody who's read the articles or heard them read today—they were read verbatim. You know the entire thing. You know, sort of interesting to hear that. Knows that they end with if convicted, not only removed from office, but prohibited from ever holding another one going forward. So we do know that you can permanently bar a person from office on the basis of impeachment. What we don't know uh, is whether or not if he's acquitted, he could be tried for the very same thing. So the concept of double jeopardy is once jeopardy has attached and you have been acquitted, you can't be tried again. Here, it's unclear that that Attaches at all. And in fact, I think it does not. And indeed, I could imagine, let's assume for a moment, just for the Mm -hmm. sake of argument, that the Senate changes hands. Well, who's going to be the first person to stand up and say, the Senate gave us a sham trial, and they didn't call Mick Mulvaney, Mm -hmm. and they didn't, we're going to impeach again, (laughs) For the purpose of getting the witnesses we didn't get the first time. Would
3: they have to impeach again? Or can they just pick up? Do Would the, would the house well, have see, to? We don't know. Yeah, right, right. That's right.
2: the thing about so God. many of these. We don't know. And we need the courts to decide. Mm-hmm. Adam Schiff should not be the guy deciding all of these questions. He should have let courts decide on these subpoenas.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: This but whole... he didn't have time. Right, right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Which makes I'm you quick. wonder yeah. what's really happening.
3: Right, right. The whole the pace of the whole thing. And again, the, the pace is because of, of the political dynamics, right? You want to get this done sure. so you don't have it in, in the in the hands of a, of a presidential election. But yes. Oh, the double jeopardy. Yeah,
2: it's a great question. And it is. There's, and there's truly no answer to it, at least at this point. The Constitution, of course, is completely silent on the question of whether or not. Yeah. Once acquitted, always acquitted. And, and I think the argument would be, since it is not a criminal trial, the prohibition against double jeopardy doesn't apply, which is to say that a House and a Senate mm-hmm. could, for the re- same try the very yeah, same same thing. conduct,
3: right? Because mm-hmm. you could you could impeach him again on a different issue, but that's different from this, right? You could they say, could vote the same two yeah, articles yeah. through, yeah, uh, uh,
2: exactly the way that, and then take to a different Senate the exact two articles.
3: That's really interesting.
2: (laughs) Please not. Yeah. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I think, you know, we're on a podcast. (laughs) here, Right. 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 It's kind of interesting (laughs) to speculate a little bit about. Is it, is it a possibility? And and the answer is, I think that it absolutely is. There's nothing in the constitution that prohibits it. There's nothing in the Senate rules that prohibits it. God knows there's nothing in the house rules that prohibits it. And you could even imagine the argument that people would make. Mm -hmm. Mitch McConnell said he was going to align this trial exactly with the president's or the white house's strategy. Well, we're entitled to impeach again because
3: it becomes a political question then. Is it advantageous to do that? Not a constitutional question, but they both sort of, yeah, they interfere. Well, they've already, yeah. Oh, Uh, Nick, look who's joined us. uh, Hey. (laughs) Hey, Phil Barker, how are you?
1: Hey. (laughs) Hi, guys.
3: So we should talk beers, huh? I'm all right. Yes. Uh, should, should we start? We, Tom, you want to start? It? Tell us. Tell the listeners what we. I'm going to start with the Sam Adams, yeah. and
2: then I'm going to pass to you on the transient beer. Yeah. Um, we had sort of the bucket list, uh, uh, holy grail of beers, which was a Sam Adams Utopias. Every two years, Sam Adams releases a thing that is, I guess, the best way to describe it is a hyper barrel aged beer. What they do is they take a whole bunch of barrel-aged beers and mix them. They put in a a, a very powerful yeast, and then they put them back in barrels again. And then out it comes into these gorgeous copper bottles of a very limited edition. It's uh, 25% plus alcohol. Uh, It is not carbonated, so it tastes a little bit like a beer liqueur, Um, and it is... Divine. Yes. It's also illegal in uh, more than a dozen states because you cannot brew beer beyond a particular alcohol level, typically 8%. Of course, a libertarian is deeply troubled by the idea (laughs) that states are worried about how much alcohol is in your beer when right next to the beer is bourbon. Yeah. But it is it's wildly delicious. And you,
3: you described, you said it's, it's almost as if you're having a brandy and it has mm-hmm. that feel just sort of warmingness, uh, yeah. On yeah, your belly. Oh, it yeah. was oh it's a but, bucket lister, but still sort of bright, you know, it wasn't, you know, the color was dark, but it was, oh, that was really, we've,
2: we've had bourbon barrel stouts here that were heavier than that. Yes. Even yeah. though they were 10% less alcohol.
3: Oh, it was fantastic. It was yeah.
1: Fantastic. It was, I just, I, I, I have such a hard time thinking of a good way to describe it. it I, I, Obviously, you said it, it wasn't carbonated. The fact that it was, to you, what you said, Bill, it was as bright as it was, mm-hmm. almost made it feel kind of carbonated. Yeah, it was. It's just so good and smooth, and has just the right amount of sweetness to it. Just the right amount of, I, I like. I, I I don't know. It's just, just so good. and you just wanted <laughs> to take little sips. That's all. Right. you Yeah. And you shouldn't do more than that. Yeah. It's a
2: five on untapped from TC. <laughs> now, I'm I'm rapidly approaching seven thousand unique beers and I think you all know that I have two standards for a wow. five. One is if God himself is drinking it, it's a five. <laughs> and the second is if one faces the death penalty the next morning and you're having your last meal, is it a beer you drink there? to both questions. It was special. Yes.
3: And then the second one we've had is a transient, uh, and it is the Don't Hide Your Magic uh, double IPA with tangerine and lactose sugar. So tell us about lactose sugar, because that's.
2: Yeah, lactose is a sugar that yeast can't consume. So, I mean, the whole idea of uh, brewing beer, of course, is you make this malt, which is a big sugary mess of, um, you know, grain sugar yeast turns all of that into alcohol. But when you add lactose, yeast can't turn that into alcohol. So it stays with the beer. Mm. Uh, So it it gives it a creamy, uh, a little bit sweet uh, and uh, I, this beer does not hide its magic, needless no. to say. I think it's it's really, really good. Phil
3: this would have been your perfect beer because it's it's the, the orange and tangerine are right mm-hmm. there, but it's not it doesn't hit you over the head. I mean it's no. just really, really drinkable. Um yeah. Yeah, it was fantastic. You would have another. Yes.
1: <laughs> it's um a lot of double IPs I feel like are, are overpowering and I feel like this balances <sighs> that really well. Like uh, again, you said it, it had just the right amount of sweetness to it. It's really cloudy. Um, it's very creamy yeah. and smooth. It's, it's really good. Good beer. Good beer.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> hmm. Phil, Phil, are you uh, enjoying a beverage? Yeah. So I'm drinking um, a, a Modernism. It's a it's a Czech style dark lager. It's from Schilling Beer Company. So Schilling is... Um, I've had several of theirs uh, on the podcast. It's out of Littleton, New Hampshire, and they're really good at the pilsners and the loggers. And, um, I, I had a rice lager a few weeks ago that I really liked. Um, so this is their dark check lager and I, am kind of torn on it. It's, I, I really like the flavor. It's got a really nice, yes, you know, it's you malty know, it's and it's, uh, it's got the sort of caramelly tones and stuff. Um, but it just kind of disappears. You like drink it, and you're like, "That tastes really good," and then psh, it's just gone. So it doesn't mm. stick with you. It's I don't, I don't know. I, w- I wish it were a little stronger, not necessarily in alcohol content, but in I don't know. Like take that yeah. flavor and, and give it to me more. So uh, I give it a you know, it's a B. Okay. I,
2: I just I'm the development of new norms relative <laughs> to the podcast <laughs> and, and Phil's. Uh, magnificent new reviews of beers. <laughs> I, I'm going to die a happy man. I'm going to just say that. It's an entirely new norm. Yeah.
1: Speed rounds? Yeah, oh, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, Untapped. Uh, yeah, if you guys want to check out the beers that we have on the podcast, uh, find us on Untapped, which you can download on iOS or Android. Uh, searcher, uh, search for Barstool Politics on there and you will find all of our reviews.
3: So let's do speed now rounds. How we do that. Yeah, so last week, the United Kingdom held a historic election and Boris Johnson and his conservative party won in a landslide. Oof. It was one of the most dramatic electoral victories in decades, and the conservatives will have their biggest majority since Margaret Thatcher in 1987. The result is a vintage. Indication of Johnson's strategy to campaign on a single promise to get Brexit Brexit done. I mean, he said that's all he said, and gives him a clear mandate to formally pull the United Kingdom out of the EU next month. The clear loser was Jeremy Corbyn, who acknowledged that his Labour Party had a, quote, very disappointing night, and said that he would step down after a process of reflection. Phil, after your own process of reflection last week, uh, what do you make of Boris Johnson and the big victory? I, it,
0: it, this is, is, it's it's both, both,
1: um, um, we don't, we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Keep, keep going. Uh, It's
0: both, uh, shocking and also not terribly surprising at the same time. I I don't, I don't know. I mean, this is a massive victory for, for the conservative party, particularly in the context of what has been happening, You, you know, coming out of not having a majority in parliament, the conservative party had been in decline. They'd been struggling. Um, and then to come through with this win uh, is is remarkable. I, I can't help but feel like it is as much about a dislike for Jeremy Corbyn as it is for a support of Boris Johnson and what he's doing. Jeremy Corbyn did I, – I, I, he, he seems like the, what the Labor Party has done is um, – I, it's hard to imagine do it handling this election and this whole process worse. I mean, there, I think people have, have been trying to draw conclusions or what can you learn about US politics from this British election. And I think we can learn stuff, but I think there's actually more to learn by looking back at the last election because Jeremy Corbyn is deeply unpopular. He's like he's well known nationally, but is not well liked. In fact, he has like negative forty in terms of approval rating. So like his his approval disapproval, he's like forty points underwater. Um, I, I think of parallels to the last, and, and the other thing is he they, he he really failed to put a, a clear. Agenda out there, like he was real wishy-washy about Brexit and whether there was going to be a referendum or not, and all sorts of other stuff. He didn't really and take I, a position, I help- right? I mean, he said, right. we'll, we'll have another referendum," but I, I'm not pro or against. Yeah, and so I, I, I think there are lessons to be learned there about you know the candidate you choose. There, there, you know, people have drawn parallels to Hillary Clinton, right? Who was this? Uh, who was supported by many people in her party, but was widely dispopular, you know, in, in the country as a whole. Um, and also, you know, there's something uh, I don't know, maybe there's a lesson to be learned about democratic politics moving forward in that, you know, Corbyn tried to sort of be all things to all people. He was trying to recruit, uh, you know, people who were, you know, lukewarm about about uh, Brexit, as opposed to putting out a clear vision for this is this is what we're going to do um, I, there's all we could talk for a long time about the implications and what this means for Scottish independence and maybe for Northern Irish independence and all sorts of other stuff that pops up as a result of this. But, I mean, the next ten years of British politics are gonna be they're gonna be fascinating.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So you you said that you didn't think this is a
3: sign for the United States, because every article I seem to read says that this is telling for that means a Trump victory. I tend to agree that I, I think there, there are two different political realities. And Jerry, Jeremy Corbyn screwed up in a way that is different from the way that the Democrats will probably screw up. And so it's, it's not a perfect example. But you don't think there's any any lessons there.
0: I think there's lessons to be learned. There are similarities between American politics and British politics. I I think that it, it's possible that people are jumping to the wrong conclusions mm-hmm. though about what those lessons are to be learned. I mean, it is it does fit into this broader pattern of of you know populism and, and nationalism and all this other stuff that's happening all over the world. And Johnson fits into that. But there, it wasn't that Johnson had that Boris Johnson had runaway support leading up to this. That's partly why that's it's not surprising in the grand context when you look at how people felt about the labor party and other options but just about boris johnson he, he this is not a, it's not like you know people were you know rallying behind him and that he's this well-loved figure um it, it feels like in some ways he was the default choice right he was who they turned to and so i don't want to dismiss all of that populism and the sort of anti international institutions and the sort of looking inward i think that's there's important stuff to learn from that but i, I think to, to just chalk this up to the idea that, well, Trump's going to win because this, this signify, I think is the, is maybe uh, if, if, if the democratic party does what the labor party did, then yeah, Yeah. the, the, then Trump's going to win again. Right. But I I think that's where, you know, there's, there's analogies and comparisons are really complicated. What do you guys see out of this one?
1: I I mean, I, I, I agree. I don't think this is a direct analogy to the U S but given the massive, win than the conservatives had i think it was the 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 graphic that you see is conservative gains versus labor gains i think conservatives gained 47 seats and then labor had one which is way worse than having zero you just have one compared to 47 um i i think that as much as it's you know it's they ran a bad campaign um Corbyn is is extraordinarily disliked uh, at this point in in British Dislikeable. politics. Dislikeable, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, the the just the sheer number and, and the sheer uh, um, weight of of what the Conservatives did accomplish suggests that it's not just he's the default choice in this situation. It's that people kind of believe what he's talking about and don't necessarily want to voice that opinion given, you know, the the the, the political climate uh, in Britain. But I think that is a fairly good analogy for what happened in the U.S. in 2016 and what could easily happen in 2020. Um, as much as the, uh, I, I think the Democrats have made a case for, you know, why Trump shouldn't necessarily be in office, there's a massive segment of the population that isn't going to voice their opinion to go, I don't necessarily like him, but... The opposition is just fucking crazy, and mm-hmm. I don't want that either. Um, I, I think it's more than likely that we'll see a, a, a similar, not as drastic of a result, but a similar result uh, in 2020 if the Democrats don't change their, their tactics in the very, very near they- future. <laughs> yes.
0: There's there is another analogy, sort of building off of what you were Mm -hmm. saying, because I I I heard the end of y'all's conversation about impeachment and and you know Trump you were talking about Trump sort of dragging or I think you were Bill talking about Trump sort of dragging this out. Um, there's something of it. I think there is an analogy to be drawn there in which there were lots of people in Britain who were just tired of Brexit and, and we so there were, there's lots of evidence that were people who were so disillusioned that they didn't show up to vote. They were just done with the system or, you know, again, may not have necessarily supported Brexit, but just get it over yeah. with. Um, and I think there's, you know, there are possible lessons there in, the, in terms of you, you drag something out so long that people just get so sick of it that they, they don't they don't care anymore. They just want mm-hmm. it to be done. That's a good point. I got to
2: coin a new phrase for you, political scientists, and it is voter vandalism. I, I think what's happening here is that there's lots and lots of people voting and saying, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And uh, I, yes, people didn't like Corbyn. Yes, they didn't like Clinton. Yes, there's people that didn't like Trump. Uh, there's plenty of people that don't like Johnson. I think part of what's going on here is people are saying politics as usual is garbage. We're getting terrible choices on both sides of the equation. Only the worst people are prepared to run in the current political context, you know, where we expose them to constant, ugly, terrible scrutiny and surveillance. And here's what we wind up with people who say, well, I don't give a damn. I'll mm-hmm. run anyway. Uh, and I, I, it feels to me like voters feel kind of vandalized, uh, mm-hmm. like they want to vandalize this system, mm-hmm. vote for the worst thing you can. And I'm not saying Johnson's the worst thing in the world, or I'm probably better than Corbin, mm-hmm. but I, I, there was a, there was that, that feeling in America, right? Do anything you can to break this system that has so badly let you down. And that is giving you choices you reject on both sides. Um, how do we get good mm. people to run yeah it seems to me that should be the central political science question in the next decade <laughs> right, yeah. we're starting a brand new deck how do we get good people, people to run smart principled honest uh, people that can resist the the wiles of power and uh, I just I'm so disillusioned by politics today I I'm older than all of you maybe than some of you combined <laughs> this is the worst <laughs> Time I've I've ever experienced politics and you've seen some of this just within the democratic primary
3: where it's eating each other right yeah. there are some really good candidates who are just being torn down and and it, you you wonder whether like why is the process do that uh, and I think mm-hmm. it absolutely was at, at play in the UK
1: I miss Marion Williamson
0: We talked a couple of weeks ago about how um uh about how uh When people get disillusioned with the current manifestation of the system, they oftentimes turn against the the larger system. So in other words, people get frustrated with a particular implementation of democracy, and rather than wanting to fix that system, they give up on democracy as a whole, and that's the danger of you know of mm. where we end up in a situation like mm. this when when people are disillusioned with the candidates
1: they're they're given
0: um, and so we, there's the danger of continuing down this path in, in a really problematic and destructive way.
1: Well, I mean, I'm going to go back to my point that I constantly make on this at some point, the institutions themselves need to take steps to prevent this from happening too. Uh, if there are scenarios like we're talking about impeachment, where there are no good answers to the questions that we're asking, or no good way to bring fresh blood and and, and, um, uh, what's what's the word, Uh, principled blood Mm -hmm. into the system, then you need to take steps to Prevent whatever is occurring in the current system from happening, and create a new system that is not even a new system, but a, a, a more uh, uh, equitable, streamlined, efficient system that doesn't necessarily, Well, that takes the the um, uh, the, the the passions of, of the population into account, but also makes a system uh, run in a way that makes it feel effective for for most of of or for most of the population. But,
2: but that's saying. an attitude shift. Uh, I've been thinking recently about the fact that the framers were all anti-power. The, the The Bill of Rights is entirely about keeping government out of your life. The framers were afraid of a king. God bless George Washington, who didn't want to be one. And it feels like we've inverted that. That is, mm. uh, we have a, a government of lifetime politicians who... Uh, see as their principal obligation in life being reelected and accumulating more power, uh, both for themselves and for government in general. And, uh, you know, of course, as a guy who not just loves the framers and the Constitution, but, but liberty, this really worries me. And uh, the Constitution's still here. The problem is the people implementing it want desperately to stay in office, accumulate power, Uh, uh, And I mean this, this is totally, if there's anything that's bipartisan, it's that.
3: You know, to to circle back to your point, Nick, as well, is that, you know, we've talked about that book, How Democracies Die. It's these political scientists who look at democracy around the world. And the one thing they found is that the institutions themselves won't save you. And what they found is that it's oftentimes the political parties. It's not the voters, because the voters are wishy-washy. It's not the institutions and the structure. You can have a brilliant structure you know, Weimar Republic, whatever it is, it can collapse. It's the parties within those systems that are the restraining effect. It's the political parties in no, no, two no. party systems, um, two party or multi party systems, right, that they are the ones that 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 prevent some of the excesses. And so, right. you know, when you look at, you know, the parties say, like, no, 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 we're not going to go down that road. And when parties don't curb their own individual members, right. That's when things get out of yes. control. And I, I, should, yeah.
1: I should clarify when I'm talking about the institutions, like realistically, yeah. when I talk about that, I'm talking about Congress specifically, mm-hmm. and obviously that's you know pointing towards the but it's a really important point themselves. you're making so, yeah.
3: though, right? I mean, it's we yeah. think that the structure, like if we just go back to the founders, but it, it's more than that, right? And it's not just the voters, it's, it's those. Individuals that are leading these parties that have to make those institutions work. No,
1: I, I mean I think that this is a a, a unique inflection point in yeah. in our political system and our 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 you know our experiment in in constitutional democracy yeah. in general. Mm-hmm. Because when this has happened uh, historically, you know you look back at Greece or Rome or France or anything like that. This is the point where generally you fell into dictatorship or authoritarianism and generally the the population was okay with that at least at first um so it, it's it's a i'm i'm curious to see the strength of the institutions going forward and the ability of members of congress and uh you know other members of of our, our political institutions to see how they can combat that yeah. i'm not 100 percent sure that they can no. or will
3: right but i really hope that there's they- consequences <laughs> if they don't All right, we should move to the Supreme Court. So on Friday, the Supreme Court agreed to hear three cases involving the congressional and grand jury subpoenas served on President Trump, demanding his financial records and tax returns over the past eight years. The case raises the prospects of a landmark election ruling on presidential immunity from investigation while he's in office. Trump asked the court to accept the case, and it means that whatever the outcome of Trump's separate impeachment proceedings, the controversies over investigations into Trump's conduct will continue into the heart of the presidential election campaign. President, no no doubt, welcomed the news, hoping that the conservative majority he helped put in place will uh, be deferential towards executive power. Yet he's taken a shellacking in the federal courts to date, and the court does not want to be seen as a partisan tool. Tom, what's your read of this very, very important case or cases? I
1: should say. Hold on, let me make sure this. Yeah, Yeah. we got the bell back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) right. Three court uh, cases. They've been consolidated for a single hour of uh, oral argument, but. Let's just expand that and say two originate in the House, but in different committees, and one starts from the state of New York. All are looking for documents from both banks or either, I should say, banks or uh, the accounting firm that uh, did work for Donald Trump. They're not related to the impeachment, uh, and they all involve conduct prior to the presidency. And that is sort of one of the novel legal questions here. Um, I I think a couple things. The first is... I was reminded as I uh, thought about these subpoenas and the enforcement of them of, and I, I, I hate to keep beating this Adam Schiff drum, but Adam Schiff subpoenaing AT&T for Rudy Giuliani's telephone records, and then releasing those records relative to people who were his political opponents. And I think one of the things the court has to consider here is, uh, it, if you allow, uh, the subpoena of documents during a presidency <laughs> that involve conduct prior to and without any limitation, years and years and years maybe prior to, we continue to erode the possibility of real governance in America. And I, I, I think that's a real worry. I, I feel like I'm sort of apocalyptic here. But, <laughs> but it's, it's it, it, this is a genuine worry that, that Congress is developing ways to checkmate Opponents and one of them is this kind of thing now. I'm not suggesting that all of Donald Trump's financial uh, doings are Mm Odor-free I am suggesting that pursuing them after he is done being president in one year or in five years Is certainly a thing that could satisfy most people and I wonder if that's not the direction the Supreme Court might go ask yourself if you're on the other side of this question what you'll think when Joe Biden's Mm -hmm. records are subpoenaed by a Republican Congress, if he's elected president and we make the first three and a half years of his presidency about defending himself relative to Burisma and his son. I'll be just as aggravated then Mm -hmm. as I am now. Government has to work and it can't under these circumstances. And my hope is the court will say there is to use a phrase that donald trump's lawyer used temporary presidential immunity during the time in office from this sort of thing unless there is a genuinely legitimate legislative purpose and and i don't see one here
1: i'll jump go go no no no. (laughs) like i'm just like I, i i grapple with this question and realistically my first instinct is to to think that um these questions you know, let's say that he, he does win reelection and after he leaves, um, my, my thought is that as much, um, hullabaloo as there is oh, about good these, word. I know, right. <laughs> um, that there is about tax returns and anything else that has, uh, gone on prior to him being president or anything else that, that we can think of that those investigations will stop the second that he is president. I, I, I feel like as much as that, or as much as, um, there is potential impropriety in what he's done um i think that the uh uh willingness of uh the democrats or whatever political opponent will evaporate the second that he's uh or that that he leaves office which just suggests to me that it's a a purely partisan game anyway so
0: so I, I'm going to go back to, argue, to to arguments that you have made in the past, Tom, in, in response to the – both of, of you, which is the idea that it's hard to judge intent, right? And, and that you, Tom, have argued that courts shouldn't do that. Um, and so I, there, there's a difference between the question of – in my mind – what the intent is and and there's also a question of whether it's a good idea but it all comes down to whether or not congress has the power to do this right whether whether we like how they're handling that power or not um i i know that comes in right because there are presidential powers that the court would say are you've you've used in in excess in some way but um i i don't know how might how do you separate in this case that that question of what is legally allowed Versus, you know, whether it's a good idea to be doing that, and it feels like we're we're sort of drifting into it might be problematic for this to occur, Uh, and so I I don't know. I I mean, what's do you have a? I'm kind of I don't know what the answer to that is, but I don't know how how does the court decide or draw that line?
2: Well, one way might be uh, to fully define and set a standard for a legitimate legislative purpose. Right now, we just have that phrase, and uh, when a member of Congress asserts that they have a legitimate legislative purpose to get at somebody's private records, we don't know anything beyond the fact that they've asserted that. And, and I guess what I'd like to see is that the court says in this circumstance, I don't care whether they make the, well, I do care, actually, I'll come back to that. But, uh, I'd like to see them set a standard that is easily applied that is objective and that is clear. So when either a state or Uh, a House, or for that matter, a Senate committee, asks for private records, whether, frankly, before or during the presidency, if they involve private things, we know how the court has said uh, we should adjudicate those questions. I do care whether these records are public, not just because of the Adam Schiff problem. Uh, I'm one who thinks that presidents, and I know all modern presidents have done it, should not re- uh, release their tax records. I don't think they should release their health records because I think that's one of the bars against good people running. Hmm. And, and and what worries me is that people who say, God, I do my taxes on Quicken, and, and I don't know if I made a mistake, and, and I, I, I'm not 100% sure I want either CNN or Fox News climbing into my tax returns, so I'm not gonna run. And I think the court should be protective of the idea that there are things the public doesn't benefit from knowing and shouldn't know. And I would put health and tax records into that category. So I do care whether it comes out in favor of release or not. But the bigger thing I care about is would we have a standard that guides us so that Congress knows when it can and when it cannot assert there's a a legitimate legislative purpose. You use
3: the term, is it temporary presidential immunity? That's what mm-hmm. the Trump lawyers said. Now, in the process of the proceedings, they did. there was this question raised of whether Trump could shoot somebody in Fifth Avenue. And, and the lawyer said yes, and he yeah. couldn't be prosecuted. So for me, the question is, where do you draw that line? If the lawyers are saying, even if he shot somebody... You know, you couldn't prosecute him for that. That feels to me
2: like we've well, got to think about. But, but let's bear in mind, we've, we've lost track of what a high crime and misdemeanor yes, is. Right. If the right. president shot somebody on Fifth Avenue, there's an easy answer for this. Impeach him uh, because what he has done is commit a high crime <laughs> murder, remove him from office and once removed, charge him with a crime. I mean, in other words, I think the system can accommodate that problem. Does it take a little bit longer? It does uh would
3: republicans
1: pursue that (laughs) no no, no. realistically that's that's the point that we're making this isn't this isn't a a legal this is a political process i could easily see that turning into a partisan thing where there is immunity and that's or there's an argument to me there that there is immunity wow immunity in that situation the
2: the immunity donald trump's arguing for through his lawyer is temporary that is when i am no longer in office and this is you know Mm -hmm. uh, listen Bill Clinton was sued by Paula Jones. We know that there's some grounds for even pursuing a civil lawsuit while they're in office. But what we've decided is we need the president to discharge the duties of that office effectively while they're in it. And if they are standing trial Mm -hmm. independent of the House and the Senate Mm. for whatever a state dreams up, let's just say New York gets these records and they find some uh, de minimis sort of violation of state tax law. And they tie up the president with, uh, uh, I won't say meaningless, but, but sort of. this is not like shooting somebody on Fifth Avenue, right, I guess right, is what I'm right. asking. <laughs> the president's got to be the president. He's not like all the rest of us. He has to be the head of state. He has to be the commander in chief. And I guess I'd say I'm fine with the idea that if he does commit a crime that is significant, we impeach the person, take them out of office, and charge them with that crime if they don't then it seems to me we ought to give them at least the leeway of the four or six or whatever years are left to be president
0: and then worry about these things hmm. so I, <laughs> I i'm sympathetic to your argument but i can't i keep coming around to i come back around to uh, you began uh, part of what you love about the constitution is that it's not a king right but but what you're you're basically making the argument that uh, the person in power in office cannot be touched except by a political institution, right? Except by Congress, which you are also lamenting doesn't work. And so, but you also love the constitution and the way it's set up. So how do you, I mean, it seems like something has to give there, right? you you you, you think that the, the impeachment is the answer, but you're also pointing now to the impeachment process and how it's all, you know, bullshit and political.
2: Well, I don't know that I. Uh, <laughs> uh, Bullshit I, was my word. I shouldn't yeah, put that I, in, your, uh, in your mouth. I, I swore the last time I was here. And then I swore before this one that I wouldn't swear again until circumstances merited it. And I'm not sure they do. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm saying that I, I get what you're saying in terms of, of practice, that, that if we have lowered the bar for impeachment in the ways that we have or if it is impossible to impeach a president absent the possibility that his party is Mm -hmm. controls the Senate, this is a problem. But I guess what I'm, I'm trying to talk at a macro level here. And I think all of you are too. Uh, Here's where I'm, I always joke about institutions and norms, but here's where I'm really about the institution. We have to let the president not be a King, but we do have to let the president have his article two powers. And I think that the problem with the subpoenas and, and pursuit of tax records, And then theoretically pursuit of college transcripts and college disciplinary hearings and health records and all of these sorts of things has the very real possibility of preventing a president from being the president. That's different from saying, I want him to be the king. And I guess I'm hoping that the institution of Congress would honor the constitutional, use your word, norms Mm -hmm. for impeachment and not turn it into, we don't like this guy or this gal or whoever and we're going to pursue them via impeachment if you shoot somebody on fifth avenue impeach and charge them with murder
3: i'm sympathetic to that as well but i also worry about the founders were worried about abuse and people you having too much power in that presidency and if if donald trump can say i'm not going to respond to subpoenas and you're going to have to work through the courts you know i just i just wonder how do you get to
2: that you're point you're being right? slippery here because these subpoenas <laughs> last week i i Phil, uh, Nick was worried that there was tension between us the last time I was on here. <laughs> and it turns out I didn't feel any of that. The only time I felt it is when he tried to push me off the stage at the live show uh, in our theater. Keep uh, in mind,
1: I just like the tension. I need more of that, <laughs> yeah.
2: if that's possible. Yeah. These are subpoenas looking for documents and records relative to conduct that happened outside the presidency that don't affect the presidency, and that have nothing to do with the president.
3: No, that could, that's well. I would push back on the second one. Like his, if 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 the records reveal that he has extensive ties to Russia, that affects the presidency as is right now, right? I mean, so we we don't know number two. Well,
2: but but yeah, exactly. So that if the standard from the Supreme Court is conduct prior to the presidency affects the presidency in some material way, yeah. Let's just pick a phrase. Sure. I'm fine with releasing those records. But what I don't want to do is empower Congress to decide whether or not when a guy filled out his W-4 or his W-2 or his uh, estimated tax payment, there was some uh, technical error that ties him up in court. So, yes, mm-hmm. let's just let's turn sure. out your analogy. Uh, let's say we get the tax records because the court gives us a standard material effect on the presidency. Uh, And it turns out, yes, he's invested deeply in the same things that uh, Vladimir Putin is or something like that. (laughs) Well, that matters to me, and I think we could pursue that. But the court should set a standard for when we can get documents to pursue that as opposed to when you go on a fishing expedition to try and shut a person down I, in the, in the conduct of their office. I
3: know we're going to move on real quick, but the constitution doesn't dictate that. Right. I mean, the constitution is vague in that way. So how do we avoid an activist conservative court here? You know, that's how do you, I mean, if you're reading the document, the document isn't giving us that,
2: that advice. Yes, it does. First of all, <laughs> please stop. My beloved constitution addresses these questions <laughs> with clarity <laughs> and simplicity. Uh, well, here's what I'd say. The first is, um, it is not an activist conservative court. They might very well rule to give his records to Congress. Mm-hmm. And I think the evidence is thin that this is an activist conservative court. we where's a little tension between Bill and I. Is that- I think everybody's, <laughs> I think all justices are <laughs> activists. All justices are. Um, but, but, but the second thing I guess I'd say is, um, if we come back to a standard, it, it, see, everybody wants to think about this as, does Donald Trump have to give up his tax records? I want to think about it, and I think the court will think about it as, what would the standard be Mm -hmm. for allowing Article I Congress to assert power over Article II President via the power of subpoena? And and let's go back to the Article II impeachment. Both of these things relate to balance of power. And all I'm saying is I would really like the court to weigh in and tell us how we should balance those two branches of government
1: like that all right i personally think there needs to be a a um congressional inquisition uh (laughs) that we can get all of it out in the open all everybody's dirty laundry and tax records and any sort of impropriety we can just get it out there and then everybody is on the record
3: facebook is gonna that's where all we're gonna be right it's just you know twitter facebook the instagram
1: No, I feel like it needs to be be borderline witch burning and that kind of thing. But either way, you
3: know. All right, jumping to the next topic. So, India violent protests continued for a fifth day in India over a new law which offers amnesty to non Muslim illegal immigrants from three neighboring countries. The government, led by Hindu nationalist BJP party, says that the law was simply intended to give sanctuary to people fleeing religious persecution. Yet critics argue the bill is part of an effort to marginalize Muslims and create a Hindu centric state. Opponents also point out. That uh, Prime Minister Modi's government has rounded up thousands of Muslims in Kashmir, revoked the area's autonomy, and enforced a citizenship test in northeastern India that left nearly 2 million people potentially stateless, many of them Muslim. India is the world's biggest and most messy democracy, and its population is roughly 80% Hindu and 40% Muslim. The international... What's that? Oh, yeah, 14. Sorry, 14. Sorry. It was that opening beer. But, <laughs> yes. Unless we beat 120% <laughs> right, of all,
2: that's right. all Indians. <laughs>
3: Good catch. There are
1: a lot there. Not yeah. that many.
3: The international community is also <laughs> weighed in with both the United Nations and the United States officials issuing statements saying that the citizenship law is blatantly discriminatory. Some are even calling for sanctions. Phil, many are worried that Modi is trying to wrench India away from its secular democratic roots and turn this nation of 1.3 billion people into a religious state, a homeland for Hindus. What's What's your read on what's going on there?
0: Yeah, he's doing that. <laughs> okay, that's what he's doing. <laughs> Next topic. <laughs> yeah. We made up for lost time. Thank you. <laughs> no, I mean, I, he. The, this is, I mean, he kind of fits into this larger pattern that we've talked about uh, worldwide. I mean, he, this has been, uh, you know, people who study nationalism and and the role of religion and nationalism have looked at the BJP party for a while. It's not my area of. Like I don't. I don't do India, but um, uh, it's. It. I mean, that's. It's very. Much, I mean, it is very much tied up in, in Hindu nationalism. I mean, that has been the history of that party. It has been the direction that he has gone. I mean, I. I don't. That's part of the reason why. Um, my mind has has. Uh, Totally gone blank now. Why can't I think of the Hawaii the woman from Hawaii who's running for president? Why can't Tulsi I think of her name? Yeah. Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard has been criticized for her connections to the to to uh, Modi for these reasons, because of of policies. And 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 Modi before he was prime minister, the the province that he oversaw, there was there were a long history of of religious violence. Um, yeah, I mean I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about it other than uh, I'm one of those people who sees this as a as a as a problematic trend in the direction of 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 uh, Indian democracy. Nick, what's your read on all this?
1: I uh, (laughs) uh, what was the the term Uh, wrench India away from its secular democratic roots? I'm not sure what period you're talking about necessarily, but um, that's cute. Um, <laughs> they're, they're a democracy. They are a democracy. <laughs> it's all ugly and messy. Yeah, and, I'm not sure. Yeah. Secular democracy is the right word to, to really? use. I mean, I, I mean, since realistically since the partition, I, I have never thought of of India as as a secular democracy. Uh, that's I, interesting. Okay. It's well, uh, I, I go ahead, Phil. What? No, go ahead. I finished what you were saying. Oh no, no. I like. I, I just. I my 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 initial understanding of that point in history was realistically to create two separate nations that were religiously motivated and, and backed, uh, which whatever that that's what it is. You can blame the British for that one. Right. Um, it's, um, I, I, I just, I, I'm not necessarily shocked by this, but I'm, I guess I'm shocked at the, the blatantness of it, but I'm not necessarily shocked at, at the, the, the uh the arc of of the, the the motivation and and practices that have been undertaken especially under this administration it's um it's happening a lot faster than i thought it would but um yeah it's blatant like it, it's 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 blatant that this is is purely religiously motivated uh to bolster india against uh you know pakistan specifically but uh, against um you know muslim neighbors in general when you're talking about indonesia uh, southeast asia a- anywhere around there that that surrounds india and you know cement them as a a non muslim uh you know south asia uh, power that that realistically would not um otherwise exist i i think it's it's really interesting the the steps that they've taken and, and tried to uh, use the mechanism of of democracy to do that, and we see this more and more as as democracies kind of continue to break down around the world quote unquote um, yeah I, I i don't know it's it's deeply problematic oh, for me <laughs> so I, I, I think I think you're right, Nick in that I mean
0: Hinduism has been a part of of Indian identity for you know since its since its independence in, in a lot of ways but I also I think you're also right in that this is this is of a different quality, Uh, you know, what what the BJP is doing, what Modi is doing is is slightly different. And I think it's worth, you know, one of the things that one of the things I look at, I don't, I hate talking about my own research, but one of the things I, I look at in my own research is, is the impact of essentially like religious threats on shaping identity. And, and so I, I think, you know, what's going on with Pakistan, what's happened with, with the war on terror over the last 20 years mm-hmm. is, was without a doubt having an impact on the way India thinks of itself. Sure. Um, You know, the, the, the nuclear threat, the nuclear back and forth between Pakistan and and India without a doubt it, it impacts this in some way. And I, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think you're right. I think that, that it is of, yeah, again, of, of a different, i don't know there's there's there's, this it's a different level a different intensity that uh that modi has brought to it Mm -hmm. explicitness Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. any sense of this tom (laughs) i hate
2: tribalism yeah (laughs) i mean you guys have hit it all in the head I, Mm i i would just tribes suck and 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 we're we're as human beings too inclined to join them and then treat everybody that's not in it as somebody that doesn't belong
3: and it's it's so true i wonder whether it's biological whether that's mm-hmm. like innate in us to find this and, and throughout history we find you there gerbils what the hell are you talking about <laughs> <laughs> all right <laughs> that was a high five in the background on the gerbils reference wow <laughs> we find different ways and different identities to group ourselves but i think yeah. it is it, throughout history and we're, we're seeing this now what's what, what i think is i think we got to move on what's interesting i'll get you back for that <laughs> trust me i sound like an asshole most of these topics. Please, i had to throw that one in. is that we think about india as like the United in the united states we like india it's the good democracy as opposed to china which is the anti-democratic country
1: but what we're seeing is that india is drifting in a really really troubling direction i, I mean even that like realistically the the concept of a, 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 democratic India is relatively new yeah, during, or, you know, sure. early in the cold war, they were more closely aligned with Russia than they were with us. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I, like, I, you know, as, as much as I, I would think that, you know, we have this long history, you know, India is, is a, a good model for a, a democracy in a, a disparate part of the world. They're, they're just not that they're, they're not They're They're consumers. They're definitely capitalist consumers but i i I don't necessarily think that they're a strong democracy by any means
3: um yeah but i would i still think there's a distinction between india and china an important distinction right um that you know in terms of democracy non-democracy and which which of those rising powers gets to define asia so not disagreeing with that but
1: Mm -hmm.
2: yeah all right we should you know what a hobson's choice is that <laughs> China or India yeah. defining Asia but well, I,
3: I think you pick it I don't know before this topic I pick India you know in terms yes. of yes uh, I would agree yeah, well, yeah. for sure 100% yeah. even yeah. after this topic yeah. okay good mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let's talk let's talk let's talk Let's talk anti-Semitism.
1: There
3: <laughs> we go. So, last Wednesday, I I President saved
1: that joke, <laughs> right?
3: President Trump issued an executive order that will make uh, Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act apply to anti-Semitic acts. The order is likely to bolster the Education Department's investigation of accusations oh. of anti-Jewish bias at several universities. The, la- the order last week came amid a rise in anti-Semitic attacks and was issued the day after a deadly shooting at a kosher supermarket in New Jersey. And it came as racial and religious violence on college campuses is growing. According to a survey last year by the Anti-Defamation League, anti-Semitic incidents on college campuses rose by 89%. However, the order is generating concern that it will stifle free speech by those who oppose Israel's policy toward the Palestinians. The executive order takes indirect aim at the boycott, divestment and sanction movement that has generated intense controversy on college campuses. The question then is whether the process of attempting to confront anti-Semitism, will the executive order undermine constitutionally guaranteed rights to free speech? Tom, there's a lot to unpack here. And you're a tireless defender of the First Amendment. So what's your reaction to this?
2: You know, I I have to say that uh, when you sent me the the sort of note, let's take this up, I thought it would be more controversial than it turns out to be. Um, This is not... A redefinition of Judaism as a race. Um, This is essentially a reassertion of Obama's Title VI approach, which says that if in addition to um, religion, because Title VI does not cover religion, it's it's uh,
3: race, color, national origin, national
2: origin. If you use those three things plus religion, then you have engaged in a thing that ought to deprive you of uh, if you're a higher ed institution, money. Um, so I'm not sure this is the the controversial thing that that lots of people, uh, and I don't mean to say that you have. Uh, now, I'm an absolutist almost on free speech. If it's not defamatory, and if it doesn't incite, I'm fine with it. I'm often fine with it, even if it does mm-hmm. the incitement part, so long as it's not you know kind of fire in the theater. So maybe I'm not seeing the controversy in the same way uh, others are I want as much free speech as possible and I don't think that this executive order is going to have the effect of changing much at all relative to free speech but I'd, I'd love to hear what the rest of you think about that Sure Phil, you have a sense of this
0: you know I, to be honest I, I don't I haven't had a chance to read enough about it to really uh, have a strong stance on it I know that there there has you were saying Tom that this doesn't involve uh, I it's been in the news in some way that the Trump administration is wanting to categorize essentially Jews as a as a race, right? Is that part of this, or is that a, an implication of this? It, it wasn't in the executive order. It right. was right.
3: rumored beforehand. Yeah. It was in okay. the news. Right. Yes. It it's all so like, not the in the text. Yeah. Although I will say Jared's op-ed in the New York Times the day after kind of drifted more in that way, but it absolutely wasn't. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it wasn't in the text itself, and that's all that it's really not matters. not in the text. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, mean, I guess my,
2: that's why the— there's less controversy here than, than maybe there should be. And, and you know, I'm not gonna be one that laments the news every minute, but this is a kind of a nice example of, the text says one thing, the news said another. Now I recognize that the possibility could be that the enforcement of the order diminishes the possibility of making arguments about divestment and that sort of thing. But that is not what the order says. And, and if it was written by a different president, I don't think anybody would have thought for ten seconds about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, the 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 part for me that's interesting in this whole debate, and it's it has less to do with this particular order, but with the larger debate and as, as a whole, which is you know where to you how, how to draw that line to to what extent you know is a political opinion or a political stance about Israel. Uh, you know, where does that cross the line into anti-Semitism? And I don't, I, it's, it's an example, of, you know, it's a conversation that I, I have in my class sometimes when we talk about the Israel Lobby article, which was out a number of years ago, and which is very controversial in, in the foreign policy world. Um, and And I don't know that we had a clear conversation. It's one of those things that it feels like we should have more of a discussion about. And I really enjoy when we have those conversations in my class. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, 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 you know, it, without that conversation, then you do blur the lines in which, you know, being critical of an Israeli governmental policy in some way crosses the line into racism. Um, and and it, it shouldn't, right? There should be some way of, of de- demarcating the difference between those two.
3: And the the question is: There the potential with this executive order to withhold funding to universities for the boycott policy, right? So, if a university says we are going to boycott funding to Israel because of their treatment toward the Palestinians, is that is that something that then the federal government can say we're not, you know, we're going to we're going to pull back on that because this is anti semitism versus the policy, right? That this is the line that isn't clear to but me. I mean,
1: If if Judaism is is not a, a uh, it was uh, they were going to um, why can't I think of the term um, define it as a, a, a as race a,
3: right national yeah national identity what is yeah the problem
1: then like realistically I understand that there are are, are complications in that sure. and there could be certain instances where you know one thing could cross into another but if that particular distinction doesn't exist then this seems like a fairly cut and dry conversation so the
3: question is if you're criticizing Israel over the particular policy is that is that just a criticism of Israel, or have we drifted into anti-Zionism and anti, you know anti-Semitism? And I, that's my fear. Is that I think I think you're absolutely right, Tom. That this the executive order itself was not as troubling as many made it before. But what is this a sign of things to come? And you know, I just I worry I worry about the speech implications, especially on a college campus.
2: Well, I, believe me, I do too. But this is this is. A thing that is in a long line Mm -hmm. of efforts to prevent free speech about identity related issues and i'm i i wish that we had the same sort of controversy about all of them that is i'll go back to what phil said more conversation about these issues is better than less conversation Mm -hmm. more engagement about these issues is better than less engagement And any law executive order regulation or any other government intervention that reduces free speech on these questions is pernicious. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm guessing that probably I'm the only guy in the room that thinks this. Anytime it is identity versus free speech, I'm going to fall on the side of free speech.
1: I agree. Mm-hmm.
2: I just, anytime.
3: Yeah. And I, I also wonder whether if you protect, if you say Jews are protected in this way on college campuses, do you not have to extend that to other groups? And where do you draw that line as well? So this, is, this feels like it has. there's a lot more underneath. So.
2: Well, but bear in mind, it's a math thing right yeah it's it's religion plus national origin so if you say i hate jews that's not a title six VI violation right, i mean right, I, yeah, please right. I, i'm gonna right, be careful right, how right, I right, say right. this but if you say i hate jews and israelis who are jews then you may have violated You've drifted title VI. into that. Mm, yeah? yeah so i mean I, I the best answer for this is let's wait and see what people do yeah right. and then let's let I know this is a, a refrain for the day. Let's let the courts sort out <laughs> whether or not withholding financial uh, assistance to colleges on the, basis of this executive order is done appropriately or not and
3: and trump's bark is often bigger than his bite right so i mean so we'll see whether this plays out all right final topic we've made it there i'm excited for this (laughs) for our final segment i'm going to ask you gentlemen to evaluate two recent examples of state propaganda both in the category of athleticism and tell me which is more deserving of the oscar for the best use of athletic propaganda Example number one, sexy Kim Jong-un on a horse. So last week, North Korea once again threatened officials, uh, I'm sorry, threatened the United States, saying that the U.S. can expect a, quote, Christmas gift. If talks between the United States and North Korea, uh, officials don't lead to substantive concessions on for North Korea. At the same time, the re- regime released dozens of photographs showing Kim Jong-un on horseback touring an active volcano site that sits on the country's border with China. Kim was shown in his, his showing his physicality on a white horse in a snowy background in a brown coat straight out of the 1950s. It's a nice little picture Ooh, there. All right. Example number two. <laughs> The Turkmen president exercise video. The president of Turkmenistan. Um, <laughs> what? We've been, We've been waiting, waiting for you for go. the entire
2: podcast All right. to
3: pronounce go. this. Go. Gerben Guli. Yeah. Alvanov. There's a Birdie Muhanovanov. Damn it. I had I had practice. <laughs> Gerben Ghouli, Burma, Bermi. Birdman
1: dove. M- M- no, no, no. Gerben Gulli. <laughs> <Ghouli>, Let's <laughs> uh, just call him. Mahana. Let's just call
3: him.
0: <laughs> let's just call him gerb his name
3: is gerb okay gerb. i practice too oh who had been rumored rumored to be dead earlier this year released a video of a workout session in which he can be seen coaching other government officials the best part is that they even write down his training instructions and techniques at the end of the video this isn't the president's first effort athletica propaganda uh when rumors of de- death first spread uh, the strongman ruler really released footage of him driving a rally car in circles near the gates of hell God we will we that. promise we will post the picture of the video on social media for our <laughs> listeners, but I ask you, gentlemen, who is more deserving of the Oscar for the best use of athletic propaganda? Who wants to start, <laughs> Phil? Who <laughs> uh, so, right, wants so, to start? Uh, dot dot dot. Phil. <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: so as as much as I uh, have an appreciation for Gerb driving around the gates of hell, in in a in a it is it is it is beautiful in a sort of Ricky Bobby kind of way. <laughs> Like the, the, it, it, it has it has appeal. I, I'm I'm gonna have to go uh, with with North Korea on this one. So that the the and it, it's not as exciting, but it does what propaganda does well, which is that there's all sorts of symbolism tied up in this. So the white horse yeah. is a is a North Korean symbol. The mountain that he's on is the 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 supposed birthplace of the Korean nation. You know, however many thousands of years ago, um, it's where his 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 grandfather who founded the the modern North and uh, state it, it's all it all ties in, and so it means nothing to us. He just looks silly on his, or he looks you know weird on his horse. But it means a shitload to uh, North Koreans, and so for that to that extent, it's I think it's really effective. Um, and it probably means that you know he's getting fired up about something. Um, it, you know, there's all sorts of like anti-imperialist <laughs> symbols in it, and so as much as I love G- uh, Gerb's uh, attempt at it, I got to I got to give the award the Oscar. If we're given an Oscar, which is for like high art, it goes to North Korea in this one.
2: So in the Supreme Court, there's this way to agree and then not agree. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with the outcome, but not the way you got there. Uh, first, let's just say out loud how many countries could have a president presumed dead <laughs> until he rides a go karts yes, around a volcanic crater, <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, not many, yeah, right, but right, Turkmenistan right. is apparently one of them. What Phil has completely missed here as he talked about uh, uh, symbolism to the North Koreans is Here's Kim on a horse that looks like it's from Game of Thrones. And how do we not post this picture? Because this is all about Game of Thrones and Clint Eastwood. He is so shrewd to say to Americans, yeah. you love Game of Thrones? I'm that. <laughs> Clint Eastwood, he's your guy? I'm him. The 1950s coat, I kind of dig the coat, but yeah. I'm older than you are, Bill. So maybe that's the problem. No, I, I'm not saying I don't like it. it looks. I'm going to add a second vote for Kim in the coat on the horse from Game of
1: Thrones, trying to be Clint Eastwood. But can I just say this? He's not. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Nick? I, this is a hard one. So, I, I mean, realistically, the fact that he said that we were going to get a Christmas gift is more than I've heard from most uh, Democratic members of Congress. Um, so, I, you know, I, I'm kind of torn on that, and I appreciate that. I don't necessarily think that that deserves the Oscar. The fact that, like, it, it, we'll post the picture, but you see this guy... When you talk about the gates of hell, it looks like hell. It's yes. just this volcanic, just... I don't know what it was. It's, it's terrifying. just this sinkhole of lava <laughs> and just death. And he's riding a, a dune buggy through it. That's the most metal fucking thing that you can do. And if there's one thing that you're going to see about the Eastern Europeans, they are metal as fuck. So... I'm going to go with the Oscar goes to uh, Gurbin uh Birdman, Doveman.
2: <laughs> I, I want to know if Nick knows whether or not David Copperfield made a 747 disappear. <laughs> because I, I think the I gates of him. hell and the go-kart might be in two different rooms.
0: I'm just saying. <laughs>
2: So I'm going to say Nick is
3: right here. Gerben Ghouli is the clear winner, not only for the exercise video, which is fantastic, but this guy has a record of doing stuff like this. Not only the gates of hell, he also released a video one time where he was on a bike with a gun shooting at targets. And he was he was like they were talking about the propaganda of look how accurate he is on a bike. What kind of nut is shooting, you know, at targets on a bike? That's that's never practical,
1: Nick. I thought of another Uh, point. Uh, Yeah. But really, if, (laughs) if I was going to hold any sort of important office, I would want people to think that I'm dead that they would not yes. even know that I'm there, that there's no sort of news coverage of it. And then I just come out to do something like this, but I still do my job yeah. and do it well. Do it well. Do See, something mental say, and then go away.
2: Here's what's wrong with all you lefties.
1: <laughs> you give me evidence, you ask me to make
2: a conclusion, and then when you make yours, you add new evidence. Oh, I know, this is true, you're right. <laughs> I don't all have right. the picture of the bike and the pistol. <laughs> Phil and I, we relied on the evidence yeah, that's in fair. front of us, and fair we point. made a judgment,
3: and we were right. You're right, you're right. If, if, you're right. The, that's fair we have in the past talked about this guy remember he was the one who had a, a gold bar that he was sitting around his executive table and he stood up and he started doing he started bench pressing the gold bar and all of his cabinet started cheering at him
2: so this the is questions not... whether that's an
3: impeachable offense I just, i'm just wondering since we've got some
2: international norms right. at stake here right
3: he's he's been around for quite a while so yeah. he's not facing i don't think that's
1: going to go to impeachment he's i think, just hit him with the gold bar
3: i think he's worse than north Korea I think it's or Kim Jong-un it is that's, it's, that's it's bad a hard news. one but he is really sort of entertaining that way he is that yeah
1: um can you stall for me? oh sure yeah
3: <laughs> um the people should order all of our merch, Nick, right? That's the most important thing. All they don't of that. They need to follow us on Twitter don't or do Facebook. Anything. Don't even listen to the podcast. Just buy our shit. You know, you can't get it by <laughs> Christmas, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't still buy
1: it. And, and we to... should
2: be vigilant <laughs> for the foil hat. Yeah, we're going the yeah, to work on the foil From
1: hat. Yeah, we're definitely going to work on the foil hat. For Madam thing. Chef. <laughs> it, will subpoena, even creepier it will be cousin.
2: a subpoena-proof foil hat. <laughs>
1: like that. <Ooh. laughs> I, that's, that's uh, oh my god I, i'm making that it's just it's gonna be the foil hat subpoena on the proof yeah. foil <laughs> hat there it Ooh. is oh my god we're gonna sell so many of those things uh, anyways if you want to uh find out when we actually do make that thing follow us on twitter uh at barstool paul pol uh facebook at barstool politics beers that we try you can find on untapped on ios or android uh just look for bars politics on there the podcasts you can find on apple podcasts uh spotify soundcloud stitcher google play music most major podcasting platforms um again we appreciate the support so review us share us like us through whatever program that you listen through um bill already mentioned the the teespring uh thing uh if you guys want to check out the stuff that we have uh, look for the direct link on uh, our social media accounts which i just mentioned uh and they're 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 fun things just check it out you can't get it for christmas but get it for new year's you should do that just wear it to the new year's parties gurbengali
3: Burmahamadoff. Burmahamadoff. birdie no. mohamadov
1: burmese <laughs> too few doll. syllables in that pronunciation my friend gurbengali <laughs> mm-hmm. i got that right <laughs> um we're 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 going to do an episode next week. Um, so look for that. We don't know. year in s- review. year in review. Yeah. We don't know specifically when it's going to be released, but it'll probably be right after Christmas. So stay tuned for that. It'll be a surprise. Um, Tom, thank you as always for being here. Always the best. Phil, thank you for being here. Despite your your back injury. I try. <laughs> <laughs> we will see you guys next week. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.